expensive seats are all uh, free this morning. Yes. All you have heavy ears, come forward. Okay. Let's pray before we start. Father in heaven, we thank you for another day in which to serve you. Lord, uh, when we were little, we were afraid to go to sleep because we didn't know we would wake up. And now that we're older, sometimes we're afraid to wake up. Father, we just pray that you will help us to see that uh, you take care of us, whether we're awake or asleep. Lord God, uh, lions and tigers and bears uh, we can be afraid of, but the one thing that we should fear more than anything else is You, because You are the living God, and You have spoken everything into existence. You hold it together by the Word of Your power, and not a hair of our head will fall without You ordaining it, and it will be to Your glory, and it will be to our good. Lord, we are puzzled at these things. But we stand in awe of You and we praise You, the great God of heaven. Bless us as we consider Your Word this morning. In Christ's name, Amen. Okay, we're going through the book of 1 Peter. We've seen that we have such a great salvation uh, that we are just awestruck at what God has done for us. And out of that great salvation, we have a marvelous calling. We're supposed to be a unique nation of prophet, priests, and kings serving the living God, and that we are to be the praise of His glory in the face of pagan peoples, <clears throat> and that we have a great, uh, a great defense. And that defense is the Word of God and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ as He lives it through us. And now we come to something that's very important, a great comfort. You know, when you go out to battle, it's one thing to know that you're going to win and that it's assured. But if you can get wounded in the process, it still can be scary. And so we need to have a comfort. And uh, one of the things that uh, you will find out when you fight face-to-face with Satan and his minions is not only is it difficult and scary, but... Sometimes you don't think you're going to make it. Part of the problem of being faithful to God is somehow uh, getting the sense, I'm just not going to make it. I mean, you've experienced that, haven't you? There's, there's just something that you... I have this illustration that I love and my wife says, don't use it. <laughs> but it's, it's so graphic that it's, it's, you, you just got to love it. It's an enema. How many of you ever had an enema when you were a kid? See, the young young kids are all going, they don't do that these days. My mom used to give me enemas when I was a kid, when I'd get a fever to reduce the fever. And I can still remember to this day saying, Mom, I'm going to explode. Mom, I won't make it. I, I can't make it. If you've ever had that feeling, now if you'd like a little cleaner illustration, think of of when you go to the ocean, if, if you go swimming, and if you've ever been hit by a big wave and taken under, and you get bounced on the bottom, you know, and you're getting bruised and scraped up, but the worst part of it is your lungs, right? You just think you're going to burst. You just, I'm going to drown. You know, you think you're never going to break the surface again. And one of the most 
difficult things in the Christian life, especially when you go through difficult times and suffering, is you just don't think you're going to break the surface. You just don't think you're going to come out on the other end. So what keeps you from hanging on? What gives you the difficulty? Well, it's the lack of hope. Right? People can't live without hope. They can party, but they can't live. And you can't party long enough uh, to make it. So, so it's this issue of hope. Okay, and let's go uh, back to the book of 1 Peter, pick up where we left off in chapter 4. We ended up with those great passages at the end of 3 and 4 where Peter's all over the place and talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, preaching through the Holy Spirit to the uh, spirits of those that are in prison now, uh, through that whole passage and the fact that the that the Jesus has won this great victory and He's put uh, all things in subjection under His feet. And we come to this great comfort, the fact that we're going to make it. Uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 19. We'll just take that small passage in the first hour and look at the, the bulk of chapter 5 in the second hour. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or even as a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. For it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and sinner? Therefore, let those who also, those also who suffer according to the will of God, entrust their souls 
to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Now, in the middle of the battle, when you smell Satan's breath, the sulfur, okay, and uh, you know you're fighting and struggling, you know, with the lusts within and with the world without and Satan. There are a few things that Peter really kind of puts together in a potpourri here. First thing is, remember, the time's short. The time is short. You're not going to burst. You're not going to drown. The suffering will not go on forever and ever and ever. Just to put it in biblical terms, you're not in hell. Beloved, really think about that. The unrighteous will be in hell forever and it will never, ever be reversed. But for us, the time is short. Verse 7, the end of all things has come near. Now, what in the world is it talking about? The liberals take that and say, you know, they all expected Jesus to come back and they didn't, they didn't have it together. Peter didn't understand what he was talking about. But Peter did understand what he was talking about. Why? Because the kingdom has come. The kingdom has come. And when I teach my counseling courses, I get all sorts of people, you know, uh, and, and I, I go through mini eschatology, pre, ah, post. I say, I hope at least you're pro-mill. Okay? And, uh, and, and, and I said, even for those of you who will surely disagree with me, because I often get a lot of dispensationalists, I'll say, I surely hope at least your Jesus is on the throne. See, if I can get the foot in the door there, that's the beginning of the end. You know, we can get Jesus on the throne where he belongs and where he is, you know, then people's eschatology will begin to fall into place. The end has come. Don't you understand that? It was the beginning of the end when Jesus Christ came the first time. In the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus Christ, the new heavens and the new earth have begun. No matter how you slice your eschatology, Jesus made a difference. A profound difference that has shaken the structure of of reality and can never be reversed. And the end has come. And in a sense, uh, you know, it's the mop-up campaign. Once Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and exalted to the throne, the kingdom was established and it is going to expand in one way or another. And you may take different millennial positions, but the point is the end has come. And the analogy that some people use is, you know, D-Day and V-Day. Really, there were a lot of people that got killed and hurt between the landing at Normandy and the final push into Germany. But the fact is, once that beachhead was established, that was the beginning of the end. And because Jesus Christ has come, Satan is not well. Now, I'll warn you, he is a defanged lion. Now, it would be like this bear that's running around here. Now, everybody wants to see the bear, and I want to see the bear. But I'll tell you, if you get too close to that bear, part of you might be missing. I'm serious. 
Okay? It's not a little pet. Okay? Now, if that bear's teeth were out and claws were gone, you'd be a lot safer. But it would still try to gum you to death. And Satan is a defanged foe, but he will try to gum you to death. And he still has pretty much crunch. So you have to understand, though, that the, the beginning of the end for him happened at the resurrection. And so the end of all things has come near. And because of that, the suffering won't last forever. Put it in Pauline terms, this eternal weight of glory is in what? Clay vessels. So that the honor will go to Him. But the suffering isn't going to be forever. And if you really think that you're going to run out of bullets and, you know, God's 7th Cavalry isn't going to come charging over like in the movies, you know, the, the, the cowboy movies, you know, where He's just about done in, you know, but boy, they come and they... They rescue you. If you forget that, I think you'll give up. And I've seen that time and time again in people. And maybe you've experienced that, right? What's the sense of fighting the sin anymore? Just give in. I can't win the battle, so why fight? If you can't beat them, join them. No. The time is short. And I would encourage all of you here in our churches that we need to kick to the finish line. You see, because you can play little sinful head trips. Right, let me give you again a, an illustration from my own life. I never was a great athlete, but, you know, I tried. And, and one year I tried to run track. And you see, that's why I never made it in football, because it wasn't big or fast. And so when you're little and slow, there's not much use of you, you know. So I went and learned to play soccer, see. So in track, I used to, what could I do? I couldn't be a dash man because I didn't have any speed. And I certainly wasn't going to run long distance and kill myself. Okay? So where did I fall into that year I ran JV track? Okay, well, half mile. Half mile is a tough race. But you see what you have to do, and, and it's really, it's not a sprint like the 440, you know. It's, you, you know, you have to have some endurance and you have to have a kick. But I had this mental problem. It's probably really was more spiritual, but it was a mental problem. Uh, I would save myself. And by the time I would kick, which I didn't have one anyway, <laughs> the field was like a quarter of a mile ahead of me. <laughs> See, I was always saving myself to the end. And when the end didn't get there, they were long gone. And some of us in the Christian life are like that, right? We're going to save ourselves for some spectacular day that never comes. You know, we're like the tortoise and the hare. And, you know, it's, the race has passed us by. Beloved, we need to, to, to fight and to expend energy and we need to kick right through to the end. Now, again, it's really interesting how people can play with you. Uh, I believe that the, 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 make the um, producers of Chariots of Fire were not believers. But that was really uh, um, an interesting flick, and I, and I love that flick. And, and I really uh, thought through an awful lot in terms of my little track experience. And, you know, I've got a different view of the Christian life. 
I don't want to limp into heaven. I want to run all the way across the finish line. I want to run into the arms of Jesus Christ. And if I forget that the time is short, I'll be saving myself for some big event. Remember how I was afraid that you know, I might deny the Lord? Wouldn't that be really strange? I spend you know, 50 or 70 years wondering whether I'm going to deny the Lord and the Lord never puts me up against the wall in the firing squad. And the strange thing would be, wouldn't it be horrible if I did experience that and I got through it, praise the Lord, and then the Lord says to me, well, what did you do with the other 70 years? You spent so much time worrying about getting shot that you didn't live in between. Okay? And beloved, if the time is short, and for all of us it is short, right? 80, 90 at the most, maybe 100 yeah, but it's still filled with labor, sorrow, and grief. Let's sprint to the end, okay? Let's sprint to the end. The time is short, okay? Don't hold back for eternity. <clears throat> you will be glorified, you'll be perfect, and you'll do the job then. But don't forget, we're measured on what we do here. Second thing, in the middle of the battle, not just remembering time is short and we can hang on by God's grace, but we need to do certain things. And here's the potpourri. Above all, okay, well, back up, therefore, be of what? Sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Now, I don't want to go into my whole sermon on prayer. But I love preaching around the OPC because one of the things, you know, I sort of hinted at it the other day, are we ever accused of being the people of prayer? Think about it in all your going around the years in the OPC, is that what people would really earmark the Orthodox Presbyterian Church as? The only praying church. But you know, I think that we're really, if we're going to win this battle, we need to be people of prayer. Now we say that, right? And don't start the misquoting of Scripture. When you come to prayer meeting, there's only two or three. Oh, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And that verse is about church discipline. It's not about small prayer meetings. Okay, so there ought to be no comfort to us when we chum the prayer meeting and there's only two or three people and we start quoting that scripture. Okay? Now, are we Calvinists or are we Calvinists? I don't know. We don't know. Maybe we're, maybe we're not even Calvinists anymore. Okay. We, we believe in the sovereignty of God, don't we? Yes. Yes, you get an amen for that. Okay, good. Okay. Oh, boy. That'd be like the black preacher asking for a witness here, okay? If I could get a witness. Okay. And we believe in this, okay? And we believe God is sovereign. And we believe it's the power of God that saves people, right? It's not their decision. Well, how are you going to get people to call out to God if you don't pray? Keep sober for the purpose of what? Partying? No. Keep sober for the purpose of prayer. Now, when you're on the battle line and people are taking shots at you, and I will tell you this as being a pastor, you know, uh, the, one of the worst things about being in the Christian army is sometimes the bullets come from both directions. 
You know, it's one thing to get shot at by the enemy, but when you're sitting there in the trenches, you know, and all of a sudden the bullets are whizzing from behind you, and you turn around and go, Whoa! What are you doing? Someone waggishly said that the uh, Christian army is the only one that shoots its wounded. Okay? Uh, you know, the infighting in the church, you've got to be sober and diligent for prayer. Friendly fire. Yeah, there, there's that actual technical term. And in a lot of the small conflicts that the United States has been engaged in, very interesting, some Britishers have been said, you know, I'd rather be on the other side. <clears throat> because in some conflicts, and it's true, Americans have killed more Americans than they have the enemy. This problem of friendly fire. American troops have had it. There's something quirky about American military. So those of you, watch out. Friendly fire. <clears throat> Prayer. Okay, well, first thing, you've got to be diligent for prayer. What's your prayer life like? I'm telling you, you won't win spiritual battles if you don't pray. Now, we know that. One of the encouraging things is that percentage-wise, we've had a lot of people for prayer, you know, <clears throat> during this conference. It's important. And <clears throat> some of us don't have even prayer meetings anymore in our churches. Beloved, we're not going to win. Uh, we're not going to take the challenge you're certainly not going to get persecuted. I don't think people went to the lions, you know, in the, uh, in the early days of the church without prayer. And I don't think people get burned at the stake without praying. Be sober, level-headed. Don't panic. This, again, this is a theme that goes all through the book. Don't let the enemy get you off balance. Be sober, level-headed for prayer. Another thing he goes on, he says, above all, yellow highlight, you know, highlight line there, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. In any organization, in any battle ready group, you have to continue to function together as a unit. And that functioning comes through love. Peter is highlighting the fact that we have to be red hot, zealous in our love for one another. Why? Because you know and you've experienced it in your marriages, in your families. You've experienced it when you are all worked up and excited about people in your family, what do you do? They can murder you practically, and you go, that's okay. Well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll cover it over. I'm not going to make a federal case out of it. But if your love is low, 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 <laughs> that's the day when you fight over the toothpaste the toilet roll, or the toilet seat. And I guarantee you, I have heard people fight over every one of those. Who squeezes the toothpaste? It says right on the tube, for best results, roll from the bottom. But for 20 years, you have squeezed wherever you want to squeeze. <laughs> and I have calculated by the time that we are married 50 years, we would have saved $737.53 if you squeezed from the bottom. 
Why should I squeeze from the bottom when you never fill the gas tank? <laughs> Every time I jump in the car to go to church, there it is, empty gas tank, and I'm late because of the gas tank. Now I've had to say to people, I've had people argue over toilet seats. Right? Leave the toilet seat up. Are you ignorant? Leave that toilet seat up. It's dangerous. I don't know if you have. I have had that experience. <laughs> I will tell you, it is not too pleasant in the middle of the night, in the dark, to go sit on what you think is the toilet seat and you keep going. Cold, rude awakening. But, but I have said in counseling many times, I really doubt that people are sent to hell for leaving the toilet seat up. And yet you are treating this person like the chief of sinners because they've left that toilet seat up. You can argue over anything, can't you? Anybody who knows is that you want to put the toilet roll in with the toilet paper out because it's easier to get, right? As opposed to on the back side where you can't get at, right? Some of you are out there. I know you're out there. See? Now, all that proves is that you will make a federal case out of anything if you don't have love. Love is what drives a marriage or a family. It keeps it going. You also need forgiveness because forgiveness is the oil that keeps the friction down. And you can have a, a, a fantastic engine filled with great fuel and you can burn that Hummer up just like that if there's no oil in it. See, and that's really what Peter's getting at. If we're going to be ready troops and we're going to fight the enemy instead of each other, we better be red hot in our love for one another. Why? Because there's the picture. Atonement. Covering over sin. Not ignoring it but covering over it and putting it away. Keep fervent in love. The next thing he says is be hospitable to one another. Oh, and I like this, without complaint. Have you ever been over someone's house as being nice to you and you wish they weren't? I've had people, you know, they give you, you know, they, they give you $10 or something and, and they say, forget it. No, I don't want it back. And for the next 30 years, they remind you that they gave you those $10. <clears throat> and pretty soon you go, look, treat the $10 back with interest. Don't ever remind me that you did me a favor. See, Some people will be hospitable, but they hate every second of it. And they make you kind of wish you weren't there. Right? <clears throat> Come in. Sit down for dinner, but don't sit on that chair. Excuse me, All right. that's a special chair. Oh, okay. And don't use that knife over there. I mean, you know, pretty soon you kind of go, what's, what's going on? People kind of, kind of grit their teeth. Now, again, in the ancient world, it was much more necessary than today because there weren't Motel 6 and the combo debt didn't leave the light on. Okay? And, and if you went out, like, in the public square, you know, you could get crunched pretty badly like the angels remember in Sodom and Gomorrah. And there was no welfare system. 
you know, there was no super state to take care of people. And it was probably better that it wasn't. But you see, the Christians had to be hospitable to one another. And the point is, without complaint, because it's not a joy otherwise. And so, again, this is sort of a potpourri, you know, that he's putting a lot of things together. But it's important. It's really important. I mean, you know, if you jump in somebody else's foxhole and they go, excuse me, not much room in this foxhole here. Could you get out? <laughs> Troops don't get too friendly that way. Okay, so fervent in love, joyous in hospitality, and then finally, he says, um, as each one has received a gift, spiritual gift, obviously, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, as it were, the utterances of God, whoever serves as by the strength that God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Now, if we're going to be good, ready troops, we not only need to be sober for prayer, fervent in love, and hospitable, there's this whole issue of spiritual gifts. And of course, today's been a day and age where that's been tramped over in the church, etc. It's very interesting to me. I want to make too much of it. But Peter mentions two of the three. You know, and you can sort of summarize the gifts in terms of sign, speaking gifts, and service gifts. And Peter doesn't mention the sign gifts here. Again, you can't make too much of that, but I think the two that are normal are the speaking and the serving. And, of course, we would believe that the sign gifts are tied up with the apostles. But, but the, the speaking gifts, teaching, exhorting, those kinds of things, counseling, those gifts are there given for the body. And part of the uh, modern tongues movement, besides the poor theology being wrong, is that people think of these spiritual gifts as sort of something that you kind of take and you crawl off in your little corner you know, and your gift is something that makes you excited. No, the gifts are given to serve other people. And so if you can teach, if you can serve, it's for other people's benefit. And I really don't know that uh, what the practice is in most OP churches, um, including my own that I've served in, I don't think have done a really great job in assessing people's gifts. You know, people get stuck in offices that they shouldn't be in and they're too embarrassed to get out. Um, we, we, uh, we get Sunday school classes and then we have them for the next 50 years when we would rather be doing something else. So I think there's a lot of work in this area that we could do in terms of our churches that would really help in terms of helping people to see, do they have teaching gifts? Do they have gifts of working with people? Or is it more the service gifts? You know, you can take some of those lists and we could do a whole conference really in terms of family camp and helping people to find their gifts. Uh, but, but the point is, they're given so that other people can be blessed. And so if you really want to be a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ and help everybody else, you need to figure out what you can really do well, what God's gifted you. And, and I would say this, I believe every Christian has been given a gift or gifts. There's no one that is useless in the body of Christ. 
And we just can't simply say, hey, you know, like the videos today, it's a talking head. You know, we'll just put pastor up there and we've got the talking head. And everything will, you know, come from that. People need to be fervently, zealously taking these gifts. Okay, so again, this is sort of a potpourri of things that Peter puts all together. Now, what's the purpose? So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And, and can we sing? We've got to sing, right? I mean, look, he breaks out in the praise here. So that all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever, ever. Amen. And then he goes back into it. We've got to stop. Come on, we've got to praise God, okay? The fact that God has saved you people, the fact that God has given you some love for each other, you know, that, that you are praying. Uh, these things ought to cause us, okay? So, we're going to sing. Okay, and I'm going to leave my mic open so that people are going to get this on the mic, on the tape, okay? What do we... Alan, will you pick something? The doxology. Okay, why don't we do that? Stan, let's sing the doxology. Okay. So Peter has reminded us in this section, remember, the time is short. You know, you're going to make it through by God's grace. Don't run out of gas. Kick right through to the end. And then there's certain things in the midst of the battle in terms of the army to keep it in good shape. Okay, these things. And now he comes back to the main theme of the book again and, and uh, more pointedly. And let me read this again, and we'll go over this verse by verse. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes uh, among, upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. For it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. So not only must we realize that the time is short and do some of these things, we need to make sure we're not caught by surprise at the attacks and the suffering that we're going to go through. And again, I've mentioned this before in one of the previous talks. In military warf warfare, <clears throat> the most 
crucial thing to victory is what they call displacing the center of a line. Is where, where the person is expecting an attack in one direction and it comes elsewhere. Mentally and in every other way, it throws the person off because their defenses are set up a certain way and when the attack comes from the other direction, everything, everything shifts and swings. And when you displace the enemy, then they, they are at the disadvantage and you have the advantage. And many a military battle has been won with inferior numbers and firepower, but have been won by this chief issue, throwing the enemy off the center of the line. And what Satan will do time and time again is to get you shocked. Now why you should be shocked that your Aunt Matilda, who has cursed God and hated God all her life and never given you the time of day, and you go in to Aunt Matilda and you try to be nice and she is nasty to you and you get surprised. Now, be honest, isn't, isn't that happening time and time again? Now, I would imagine it doesn't take too many times being bit by a large dog or even a small dog for you to get to the point where you flinch when you see a dog. And, and, and Peter is saying, look, don't be surprised. I, you know, isn't it shocking? I, I, am, I have to confess this. I am such a dumb Christian. I really am. Here's the Lord Jesus Christ, the only perfect one that's ever lived. And what did they do to him? They ran him out of town, nailed him to a cross, and spit on his name. And I, moi, <laughs> I expect people to treat me nicely. Dumb, dumb, dumb. And how many times do I get up in the morning and I really expect people to treat me nicely, and when they don't, I fall apart. Why? Because I forget what Peter says. Don't be shocked. See, don't we really loathe and properly loathe the prosperity doctrine? Don't we? We say Kenneth Copeland and Hagen, they're heretics, and they are. But won't you be honest enough to admit that there's a little bit of that in you? Or maybe a lot of it? You're, you're, we're in this almost for the blessings that God gives us instead of saying, my great privilege is to be identified with Jesus. Isn't it? We've got everything backwards. We're identified with Jesus. And did the world jump up and go, boy, what a guy. We just love Him. Uh, not. And so one of the biggest issues is every day you've got to get up and pinch yourself and go, I'm not in heaven yet, as if you needed reminding, but you do, right? I'm not in heaven yet, and, uh, and everybody around me is not in heaven yet, <clears throat> and if I expect to have an easy go of it, I'll be shocked. <clears throat> Prepare for the faints. You know, Satan works on this. Uh, there was uh, Don Richardson, and he's still around in, in uh, circles, wrote, uh, what was it, Peace Child, and 
lords of the earth. And a lot of things are good and some are not so good in that. But one of the things that was interesting in, in, in the culture in Papua New Guinea that he talked about was this whole concept in the one tribe of, of setting up your enemy for the kill. <clears throat> the concept is this. See, they were cannibals. And the chief accomplishment that any man could accomplish was making his enemy think that he had become a friend, and it was setting him up for the kill like you would with a pig. What you would do is then make him think that you were now buddies, and then you would kill him and eat him. And that, I mean, you were the great guy if you did that. Now, we can hardly imagine people doing that, and of course, cultural anthropologists would simply say, well, it's just cultural perversity. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> we really can't say that that's wrong. You see, and Richardson realized that when he's telling the gospel story, and guess who became the hero? Judas. He goes, what went wrong? Because in that culture, Judas was, hey, three years with Jesus, and he set him up. Judas is the hero. And then the analogy that helped was the peace child. But, the, but Satan will set you up for the kill. And, and, and he'll want you to think, oh, everything is, is just going smoothly, and then boom. And then you're sitting in there with self-pity and going, why, why did this happen to me? How could this happen to me? I thought I was supposed to name it and claim it. And uh, <clears throat> gee, something went wrong somewhere. See, that prosperity doctrine is just part of sin. And that's the way we respond. Don't be shocked. Don't be shocked. <clears throat> How should you respond to it? But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, what? Yes! Keep on rejoicing! Now, how many of us say, they hate me, I must be doing something right? But that's what, that's what Peter is saying. To the extent that you live like Christ, and you get Christ's response for that holiness, you should be happy. Why? Keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of His glory, you may, result, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? You tell me, why? Because the what? The Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Have you not had that experience? It's been rare, but I've experienced it. You are driving down the freeway and someone cuts you off. And instead of cursing them, you don't curse as Christians, of course. You just sort of... Christian curse words, right? The fleas of a thousand camels of a thousand deserts become embedded in your left nostril. You wouldn't curse, but you would sort of get them like that, right? And what do you do? I've had this experience. You find yourself praying for that person. Now, maybe you're more godly than I am. I hope you are. But when that happens, do you know what happens to me? Sometimes I start crying. Because I go, that's not me. 
That's not the way I would respond. Do you know how precious it is to respond in a Christ-like way to something and then all of a sudden realize that it's the Holy Spirit that's working in you? Christ, and you get persecuted for it, you should rejoice. You should say, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. The Spirit of God and of glory rests upon me. And so the six o'clock news will certainly not carry the great <laughs> newsworthy item that you've responded like Christ. Now, again, Peter's realistic because he goes on and he says, Now, wait a minute. By no means let any of you suffer as what? Murderer. Okay, we can cross that off. Okay, Thief, evildoer, but he gets down even to a busybody. Look, we all have at times spiritual B.O., right? And bad breath. And maybe you've experienced it or seen it in others where your plain old sinful obnoxiousness is what you're getting persecuted for, right? Don't confuse it. And Peter's saying, look, you know, don't confuse that people don't like you for the fact that you're suffering for the Gospel. You know, we had a guy like that back at seminary. He couldn't understand why nobody liked him. It's because he kept calling the wrath of God down on everybody. Very strange person. And there are people like that. We've had people in our home. Never should have had them. But we've had some people live in our home and they were in trouble and they were in trouble with the law for various reasons and they would come back with these glowing testimonies. I... I'm taking a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what we found out later? They were just plain old obnoxious. One we can think of in particular, we had to excommunicate from Bayview because the guy wouldn't pay his debts. And he'd come back with these glowing reports that his court-appointed counselor was persecuting him because he was standing up for Jesus Christ. You know what we found out? This guy was an obnoxious slob. And that's why he was suffering. And guess what was suffering? The reputation of Jesus Christ. The reputation of Jesus Christ was suffering. That's what Peter is saying. No, no, no. Not for your sins. Not for all those. If you suffer for taking a stand for Jesus Christ, that is what you should glory in. Well, let me wrap up. Finally, judgment's coming. Trust God. And, and, and here's an interesting thing. And I think this refers back to what I mentioned in the earlier chapter with what Peter was saying. Christians will be judged. There's a heresy going through some portions of the church that once you confess your sins and, and quote, accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you never have to confess your sins ever again. You don't have to because that would deny the atonement would deny the fact that you've been declared righteous in Christ. Well, I just suggest they read this chapter. Because what Peter says, judgment is beginning. And guess where it starts? In the house of God. When the commanding officer comes to judge, 
He doesn't start judging Satan's troops. He starts with his own. And he sits us down and he says, and, and Peter starts quoting the Old Testament, he says, it's difficult, right? It's difficult for even those who have been made righteous in Christ to be saved. It's with difficulty. It's through suffering. It's difficult for us to get to heaven. Now, it's guaranteed, but let's not be fooled. The commanding officer who has died in our place so that we can be justified and put into the family of God and saved, we can't lose that. But our life does count. You will be judged for whether you build with good materials, whether you've been a good soldier. And beloved, I want, and for you and for me, when you get to heaven, what are you going to lay at Jesus' feet? What trophies are you going to lay down? That's what Peter's thinking about. Peter says, think, guys, think. You know, if, if it's with difficulty that the righteous get saved, what in the world is going to happen to the sinner? And of course, he's reminding you, they're going to really get it. They're really going to get it. So don't get caught up in the tactics. Let me just end with this. You can't win Christian battles fighting like the world, can you? How many times have I tried to be the Holy Spirit? I should know now that I can't be the Holy Spirit. I'm responsible for setting an example, telling people the truth and loving them, but I can't make them believe and I can't make them obey. It's, it, it's, it's, it's so hard. This is where we stay on the edge of eternity. Pastors have it all the time. We can't preach people into the kingdom. Do you realize what we're doing? Jesus says, go preach to dead people and make them live. And you've got to turn. God, are you, you've given me an impossible task. But that's the mystery of the Gospel. And so Peter says, look, judgment is coming. What's going to happen to those that don't obey the Gospel? So, so what's the bottom line? He recapitulates, last verse. Therefore, let those who also suffer according to the will of God do what? See, it goes back to what we had in chapter 2 with Jesus. Entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. You know what it comes down to? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. In fact, J. Adams wrote a little commentary on 1 Peter, and that's what he entitled it, Trust and Obey. When you're in the middle of the battle, don't get shocked. Be prepared. Do these things and hone in. I wear the insignia of the cross. I wear the badge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wear His uniform. And when I'm a faithful soldier and I suffer for it, I'm standing in good company because my commanding officer before me suffered those same threats. In fact, Paul says it differently elsewhere. Everyone who wants to live godly will what? Will 
suffer persecution. See, and with this, some of our modern evangelism isn't very honest, is it? Come to Jesus. Come to Him. He'll give you whatever you want. He's the divine cosmic vending machine. So you put in a little prayer and you get out the blessings. And of course, then what happens? Like any vending machine, if it doesn't give the right one, you kick it! Start banging on it and saying, I want my money back! And so what are we happening with a lot of people who have been told that Christianity is just naming it and claiming it? They're weeping over dead kids because they've claimed the victory and the kid dies and they think, what went wrong here? And then the worst cruelty of cruelty is we can't blame God and we shouldn't. So then who's at fault? You. Your poor, defective faith is what messed up the whole system. Talk about despair. Talk about a giant rip-off. No, God's called us, beloved, to suffering. So don't be surprised. But just remember, a great comfort. It won't last. The body can minister to one another in the midst of the suffering. Now this sounds silly in some ways. My father just died. And I have learned to some extent what it means in the Scriptures. Precious is the death of the saints in the, in the eyes of the Lord. And I've seen people come in, have wonderful experiences to learn with other people, to hear my father witness, take off his oxygen mask, and say to the nun who said, we're saying masses for you, say, I want to tell you something. Only through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ can you get forgiveness for your sins. That's my mass for you. Woo! I see you know your theology. <clears throat> Same little nun when she wanted to get a priest. Mom told her after Dad died. What's he need a priest for? He's got Jesus and he's with him. And that, <clears throat> you know, my voice is a little froggy. It's always been, but we sang gospel hymns to Dad. You know, it was interesting to see people pop their heads around the corner and then see people minister, uh, a whole congregation minister to my, my dad and mom. See, in the middle of the battle, we can sustain and encourage one another. But the bottom line is, when we suffer for the glory of Jesus Christ, that should be our pride. Don't be ashamed. Glory in Christ. Final exhortations. I think we need a historical perspective on the suffering. Even as Orthodox Presbyterians, and we know that life isn't easy, and the schlock gospel that's out there today, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not even really the gospel, it's another gospel. Someone called it the light gospel. You know, 25% less filling. You know, <laughs> less commitment. You know, the be happy attitudes. We know it's wrong. But you know, I think you need... Beloved, I would encourage you, get Fox's Book of Martyrs. Just, just read about the, the saints through all the ages. The, the blood of the martyrs really is the trail of the church. I think you need to prepare for suffering. There's a little book by Jay Adams that's helpful called uh, How to Overcome Evil. It's exposition of Romans 12. You need to get prepared. Okay, You need to learn to duck. You need to get ready for the persecution. 
And then I think more and more we need to lose that sense of, uh, <clears throat> if I can say it gently because I am one of us, this OP mentality that, that we're, we're the faithful remnant. And we are by God's grace, but you know, we don't have to be small. Gospel can triumph. You know, people can become Calvinists first, first cut around. Don't have to get a second blessing, you know, get saved by Arminians and then become Calvinists. You know, that's a typical pattern. Now you're laughing because it happened to you, okay? You know, I had people, when I was in the pastorate first time, they, they actually came back to me and said, it was cute. One, one, one lady said to me, a great guy down the road I knew, a CMA pastor. You know, pastor, he doesn't believe in predestination. I didn't know there was anybody in the world that didn't believe in predestination. Can you imagine that? There is a, there is a young, naive Calvinist. You know, She didn't even know that there were people in the world that didn't believe what the Bible said about that. Okay, okay uh, let's stop... The, the, the kind of remnant mentality in the sense that, that leads to shame. And let's have godly pride that we're identified with Jesus Christ. Okay, let's pray. Father, as we take our break, we pray that we will encourage one another, <clears throat> that we will uh, see that we have a great comfort, that we're not going to be in this battle forever and ever that this battle has been won, that You've given us gifts and tools to encourage one another, and that as we are more and more identified with our Savior, we should rejoice. Because that, in fact, is the great privilege of the Christian, to be identified with Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.